So we continue our sermon series about um, doubt and um, got a great text for us to think about this morning because what we've been kind of focusing on last week we talked about is God really true? This week we're going to look at is the Bible really true? And then next week we're going to look at is heaven really true? And so here are these words um, from the, from actually from 2 Timothy that seem to be fitting for our subject this morning. Uh, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching for showing people what is wrong in their lives and for correcting their faults and for teaching how to live right. Using the scripture, the person who serves God will be capable having all that is needed to do every good work. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, amen. So is God true? Is the Bible true? Is heaven true? This last week I was driving into um, church and I saw a bumper sticker that I, I'd never had seen before. And it just kind of took me back and I actually wrote it down and I thought that's actually kind of clever. And so here's what I read on the bumper sticker and it said, can you put that fight truth decay? And I thought that was actually rather clever. So, you know, we're thinking about, you know, is the Bible true? Is God true? Is heaven true? And we're looking at it because there are some people look at, you know, there are, some of us have this doubts. And, uh, and so, I, you know, I was thinking about this this week about, you know, once, uh, you know doubting and um, sometimes even doubting myself. And um, I think we've all done, gone through that part of our lives. I mean, there have been making decisions that we've made about doubting. And, um, you know, I've, I was doing a, a memorial service for Mary Englehart and Mary and uh, her son Jeff came to church every single week for years and years and years. And so we did that this last week. And so Jeff got up and did a beautiful eulogy for his mother. And then um, when he got up and started talking, he talked about how much his mother really loved our church. They sat right, I think, believe right over here. And I, I, may, I used to joke with them. I said, well, you guys are really great Methodists because I always know exactly where you are because I always know exactly where you're sitting. And so they always sit in the exact same seat. And one of the things that Jeff said about his mother is that, you know, he loved come, she loved to come to church. And they were actually here the first Sunday that I preached back in July of 2011. And so Jeff told a story. He says, you know, when they walked out of the service that particular day, heard me preach for the first time, um, they walked out the door and Jeff turned to his mother and says, Jeff, uh, Mom, what'd you think about that new preacher? And she says, well, she said, he's kind of like, popcorn and a hot skillet. And I had been described a lot of different ways, but I never had been described as popcorn and a hot skillet. And so, you know, when you hear comments about like that, I start kind of doubting myself, you know? And so we all have had doubts. I mean, each week I get up and I, I tried to do my best and put together a sermon and I spend literally hours and hours of you know, preparing, and I, then I think, oh my gosh, is this really going to come together? Lord, you're going to have to help me. The Holy Ghost is really going to have to breathe some life into this, because it's just not good. And then somehow, when it's all said and done, it, you know, it comes together each week, and then I get done, and I usually go for a run on Sunday afternoon, and I kind of second-guess myself, but then I remind myself, God, I love doing this. I love, I love preaching. I mean, we've all had doubts. Sometimes we doubt ourselves. I was thinking about many people I've come in contact here with, um, with you all that lost spouses. 
And one of the things I, I found is some people ask themselves, will I ever be able to love again? And people start doubting if they'll ever be able to love again. How can I ever love someone after I've loved someone for 50 or 60 years? And what I found is a lot of people have actually fallen in love again. They can't have, once again, a new life with another person. But, you know, once again, there's this parts of life that we doubt. You know, I shared with you all last week that I had... Um, was not real happy about this new subdivision that was supposed to be going in behind her house. And I remember when Don and I bought that house back 11 years ago, and we thought, well, we, you know, this is beautiful because we're, you know, no one's going to build on a golf course, right? And so then they all of a sudden we heard that they were going to put 372 houses in our backyard. Oh, goody. And then, um, then I was, after I preached that sermon last week, and I was just kind of really, I was kind of distraught about the whole thing. I'm thinking, you know, this could be a deal changer. Don and I actually may move, and we love our house house. And then on Monday morning, I was running and one of my friends who was, lives in our neighborhood, he says, Harold, you're not going to believe. And I said, what? He says, evidently they took that whole thing off the market and now it's, they took the word off pending. And so they're not going to buy it. I think, booyah, this is great. Right. And yet I still had doubts. And so when we look at life, sometimes it's life, there's a flow to life, isn't it? I mean, as my daddy used to say to me, he says, Harold, sometimes all we can do is pray and hope for the best. And so I, I, I found it in life, and you all kind of relate to this as well, is that, you know, sometimes we have doubts in life, but there's this other balance to life that we have hopes and dreams about life. And, um, you know, I, I was reflecting upon that this week and think about this kind of keeping it all in balance between hopes and doubts and maybe not being too overconfident. I was reading this last, you know, um, today, you know, last night there was, you know, all this football going on. This is back of the football season. And, and of course, there was a lot of college football going on. And then today is the NFL is going on. And then, you know, from, um, we lived in Boynton Beach for, uh, for 15 years. And so there's a kid that came out of Boynton Beach who actually became a pretty good football player. And here's a picture of him. If you can put it, his name is Lamar Jackson. He went to Boynton Beach High School. And um, he's one of the best quarterbacks in the world. And he's done extremely well. I think he had a rookie contract and he, you know, he made a lot, you know, a lot of money. But then he became the MVP of the NFL, which is a pretty big deal. And, um, and so he'll be playing today. And so, you know what, they were, he was in the contract negotiations with the Baltimore Ravens this last couple of weeks. And so they were trying to get the deal done, but they didn't close the deal because Lamar Jackson says, you know what, I, I, I appreciate the contract, but it's just maybe evidently it wasn't good enough or it wasn't enough. And so the contract was for $250 million for five years and he turned it down. Wow. Because he wanted, evidently, they're only going to offer him $133 million guaranteed. Now, what's happening, when I started reflecting upon that, I'm thinking, wow, how do you turn down a $250 million contract and only have to work for five years? I mean, how much is enough? And then I started reflecting, and, and what the commentators talked about that, which kind of, once again, you know, I didn't think that was maybe the best decision for him, but when the commentators, when they talked about him in his life, he says, well, Lamar Jackson always does it his own way, and he's betting on himself. And so I was reflecting upon that. I mean, is that just stupid, or is that rational? But you know what? He's only one tackle away from some 300-pound linebacker crushing him into the ground, and he mixes up his leg, and all that $250 million contract goes bye-bye. Yeah, it's amazing to me. There is a difference between doubt and being overconfident, right? 
I was reading this last week. My friend uh, Dave Johnson was talking to me. He came to me in men's breakfast because he evidently, you know, Dave's always thinking and writing. I, I really appreciate Dave. He was here last night, his wife, Judy. And he handed me this piece of paper at men's breakfast. And the title was, you know, I believe, help my unbelief, which is the sermon I preached on last week. You know, is, is God really true? And he, took, he wrote down like his top seven quotes that he wanted to share with me. And I thought they were so good. I want to share with you all today about doubt. And so this is number one. He says, doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is ultimately part of the journey. Number two, we are finite creatures seeming to understand an infinite God. Number three, I therefore had to remove knowledge in order to make room for belief, Immanuel Kant. Number four, the Bible gives everything we need, but not every answer, the truth, but plenty of room to wonder. Number five, he wants us to search, to ask, to ponder, and wrestle to be mystified. Number six, we believe and we don't. We follow and we fail. We are weak and we need help. And number seven, faith means believing in advance what will only make sense and reverse. Philip Yancey. That's good. Doubts. Faith. You know, I was once again reflecting upon my life and I thought that all these people, you know, and th over 30, almost being 35 years of this, I met a lot of people and a lot of really powerful people have influenced my life. And, you know, I, I think about people who have bristled with doubt. I think about my friend Pam came to me about 15 years ago and her and her family started coming to our church. She had two little boys and the reason why she came to our church, she wanted her kids to be baptized. And you know how that sometimes goes. Sometimes I baptize the kids and I never see them again, but she stayed, her and her husband. And she came to me one day, she says, you know, Harold, I have, I really am struggling with going to communion when you give communion. I said, why do you feel like that, Pam? She says, because I feel so unworthy. So she started doubting, you know, this, her worthiness. And I said, Pam, the reality is, you know, you're right on, you're, you're right there with the, well, the rest of us because we all have, once again, we all are truly unworthy. And that's the beautiful part about God's amazing grace. And that's what we find in the Eucharist itself. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten so whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God gave Jesus and he died for our sins because we are unworthy. That's the point. She got it. I was thinking about, once again, my friend Bob Burke, who one day I had lunch with him at Cracker Barrel and he brought me my friend Charlie Skinner's flag. Charlie, as I mentioned to you all, he, thought, he fought in three wars. World War II, and the Korea War and the Vietnam War. And Don and I still have his flag. And so Bob said to me, you know, Harold, I, I've struggled my whole life. I said, Bob, what do you struggle with? He says, I have struggled with the, this feeling of guilt that I came back from the war and I survived and many of my buddies didn't. And then I also have also struggled with the idea, how can God really love me and forgive me for what I did in the war about ultimately killing other people in the war? And he says, I have struggled with that with my whole life. And then until one day I went to the altar and I had gone to the altar and I would ask God to forgive me and to help me. And then somehow I would get back up and I'd be in the same spot until one day I went to the altar and my friend Leela Evers, God bless Leela Evers, put, my hand, put her hand on my shoulder and she said, Bob, you need to leave it there. And he said, I did finally. So he spent his whole life doubting 
until one day he went to the altar at Dunelling United Methodist Church and he left it there. Doubt. I was reading this um, list last week. One of my friends, Charlene, brought me this book. And it's, it's titled, Then Sings My Soul. And, and so immediately when I, I looked at it, and this is about hymns that have been written. And you know, I love the old hymns, and um, I appreciate it. And one of my favorite old hymns is um, Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. It was written by Charles Wesley. So I go to the book, and um, I look up that particular song. And so this particular song um, was um, written in a way that Charles um, wrote it because he wanted to celebrate and commemorate um, his conversion. And so um, he, I think there was about like, I don't know, 15 stances to this. I mean, Charles was, the, but we only, we have in our United Methodist hymn, we, they picked out five. And so I think this is actually the seventh stanza of the song. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, thy triumphs of his grace. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, Tis music in the sinner's ears, the life and health and peace. And so when I read a little bit more about the story behind that particular hymn, I thought it was really interesting because um, when he had his Christian conversion, he, he described it, when I looked it up this week, he says, the Holy Spirit chased away the darkness of my unbelief. And so... In the midst of all that, um, I didn't realize this, but, you know, um, Charles evidently had a bad temper. And not only did he have a bad temper, but he, he drank too much. And, and so what was really interesting, because I have a tendency to put like Charles and John Wesley up on a pedestal. And then I'm thinking, man, these guys had issues, right? And so I thought it was very interesting because he wrote to his mother, Susanna, about his Christian conversion. And, um, and then she wrote back and said, and in essence, she even started doubting her sons. Now, Susanna had 19 kids. Like she gave birth to 19. And she was even doubting little Charles and John at some point in their faith. And then she had written back to him and said something to the effect, and she said, you know, it, ultimately, faith is to be sensible, and I'm glad that you finally have it. And I love the word sensible. Sensible means, it means practical, rational, wise, prudent. It's, it doesn't mean to be foolhardy, right? So even Mrs. Wesley, Susanna, began to doubt her own children. And yet Charles finally comes through. And about three days later, John has his Christian conversion. And they go on. Charles ends up writing 6,000 hymns. And John goes on and starts a whole Methodist church. And the reason why we're here today, and he preached 40,000 sermons, the Wesleys. But they even had doubts. The Wesleys had doubts. Susanna had doubts about her kids. Yeah. So, we, you know, we look at this today and this whole thing about Scripture. Is the, is the Scripture really true? And some people may be out there and they're scratching their head and they think, you know, I've read the Bible. And... Um, you know, is it really true? And I mean, I, I've read some things in there that just maybe um, are a little bit troubling to me. For example, if you go back and, and say, if it's troubling to me, and I'm, I'm pushing to a answer questions, by the way, that's what I've, once I've talked about, having faith. And faith is, is not ultimately 
it's okay to ask questions and even ask questions about the Bible. This is, a, this is good to be able to push and ask questions. And so I was thinking like, for example, you go back and look at the Bible and you look at women's role in the Bible. Okay, well, you know, women in two or 3,000 years ago, you look at the role in the Bible and it was a much more submissive role. Um, but then you look at where we are today and like, for example, it wasn't until like 1950, let's see, it was 1956 that women in, in the United Methodist Church are even allowed to preach. Okay. Which is very interesting because back in about 1761, there was a lady by the name of Mrs. Crosby. She was very devout in her faith. She was a devout Methodist. And... Um, one day, she had a Bible study, and 200 people showed up. And she was actually a very good teacher. And then all of a sudden, she went from teaching to preaching. Oh, my. That shook things up. Then she had to write Mr. Wesley. She wrote him a personal note, and she said, I want to beg for forgiveness, but I've gone to preaching. And Mr. Wesley ultimately said, keep preaching. It's a good thing. And so once again, you go back and look at the Bible and think, well, there, you know, can I, you know, here we are in, you know, 2022 and, you know, how does this apply to life and, you know, women in the Bible and, you know, once again, there's like slavery in the Bible. What do we, we, what do, we do with that? And, and there's this, there's this, there's, there's this tension that we find in the Bible. We ask ourselves and we start scratching our heads and we, once again, how we, is this, is the Bible really true? Well, yeah, the Bible's true. And then, but yet that we look at scripture and also look not only some things in there that might be troubling to us because it was written two or 3,000 years ago and trying to apply it today, but then there are some things that we look at and think, okay, can I really believe that? For example, when I was a kid, one of my favorite stories was Jonah and the whale. Yeah, y'all love Jonah and the Whale, right? We all love that story, Jonah and the Whale. I, I remember, you know, my teacher teaching me about that and we had the little coloring book and we'd color in the Jonah and the Whale and the whole story, you know, Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh and God says, go to Nineveh and he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He's scared, he doesn't want to go there. So he ends up going to Tarsus and, and, and so they just get thrown overboard and he ends up getting swallowed by this big fish, this whale and... And, and he lives in the belly of the fish for three days. And then, I, and then God speaks to the fish and the fish th throws him up on the shore. Well, that's a pretty big story, isn't it? And so, you know, as a kid, you, you know, you listen to that. Wow, that's a praise. And then as you get a little bit old, you start scratching. I, did that really happen? I mean, how did God really, did God really pull it off that way? And so, you know, when you look at these stories, and there's story after story after story, and once again, I'm, you know, I wasn't there. I, I, you know, if, as I truly believe that if God can raise Jesus from the dead, he probably, you know, he can do that as well. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. But once again, one of maybe what, as we look through, we look at the Bible and the teachings of the Bible there are some things that are maybe somewhat troubling to us and once we try to fit them into where we are today. But then we look at the stories and we ask ourselves, well, you know what, okay, 
Did that happen just exactly that way or it didn't happen that way? But maybe what we need to be looking at is the real truth of what God was trying to reveal to us in the story. And maybe the truth of what God was really trying to reveal to us in the Jonah and the whale story is that we really shouldn't have to run from God, but maybe we should run towards God or Maybe what we should be thinking about is to be obedient to what God's called us to do in the life and not go the opposite direction. So when we read the scriptures, once again, we read the story, read the stories, and we ask ourselves the deeper truth to the story. Another great story is like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think about that one. I mean, that's a pretty powerful story, isn't it? I mean, it's right up there with Jonah. I mean, you got these three guys, and, you know, Nebuchadnezzar tells them, you know, hey, listen, you bow down to my big statue, worship, and every, oh, all, well, all the Israelites bow down because they, did, they knew if they didn't bow down, they're all dead ducks. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they raised their hand, hey, we ain't doing that. We ain't doing that. And, and then once again, the whole story breaks down. They take them and throw them in a fiery furnace, and then all of a sudden, they're in there, and they, and the, and the, and and they were. The king was so angry. He, he, he lit up the furnace to be astronomically hot. And they threw them in there, and they should have been incinerated. But you know what? Not a hair on their head was um, burned. Not even their clothes. And so they came out perfect. And so we scratch ourselves. How did that happen? Right? And then once again, I wasn't there. I don't know if it happened exactly that way or not, but I do know that there's some deeper truth to that story that maybe God really wants us to get at, and maybe the truth has everything to do with not bowing down to idolatry and worshiping something that we shouldn't worship, and we worship a one true God. Can we amen on that? Okay. So you get the drift of where I'm going with this sermon today. You know, we, 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 we can struggle with some of this and we can ask deeper, which I think is great. Once again, we ask great questions. But if you look at the whole Bible as a whole, there's always, we look at all these stories and there's always a deeper truth that God's trying to speak into our heart. And it doesn't matter if this happened three or 4,000 years ago or it happened, once again, in the way it applies to our life 4,000 years later. There's always a deeper truth through the gift of the Holy Spirit that God continues to reveal to us in our lives. That's what I appreciate about the mystery of the Holy Spirit. There's always something powerful to be revealed through God's holy word. And I believe that. To me, that is truth. God is always trying to speak truth into my heart and my soul and my mind. And he's doing the same thing with you. And what has God given to us? Over the last three or 4,000 years, there's this collective body of manuscripts and, and it's, it's wisdom literature, it's, it's, it's history, it's prophecy. Uh, we, we've got all of that and then we have the gospels and it's all rolled together in this beautiful package in which we call God's holy word, which we call the Bible. And some people go through it and say, you know what, I'm not quite sure if I really believe that. It may be a little, well, with, forget the pun, you know, with the Jonah the well, it might be a little bit hard to swallow, right? And then I started thinking about, once again, the, the idea as we reflect upon um, the teaching. And, and so there is, um, there, you know, once again, let me just teach for a second. So there's a couple of ways to think about 
you know, God's word. I mean, there are some who believe what they call the inerrancy of the word of God. And inerrancy means like, you know, um, so, you know, God was actually dictating to Moses and to David and to the gospel writers exactly word for word. But then also, I just read just a minute ago from 2 Timothy, they talks about the inspired word of God. And so once again, you got to understand that the Bible is written over, you know, thousands of years. And so this is collective body of different works that were written by different people at different times, at different eras. And, but yet there's this truth that we believe and we take on faith and we take a leap of faith that the Holy Spirit was working through every one of these people who are writing this down. And so you can choose to believe in the inerrancy or you can believe that it's the inspired word of God that somehow God was inspired through a human being and we are all fallible human beings. There's only one perfect human being. His name was Jesus Christ. It was fully human, but fully divine. And then when we look at the scriptures that somehow God inspired these people to write down some kind of truth that God really wanted us to understand about life. And so there's part of them mixed into this, this their writing and it's part about their hopes and dreams and God's hopes and dreams for us and part of its prophecies, part of its wisdom, some part of its history and it's all woven together in this wonderful book that we call the Bible, the word of God. So once again, you can choose how you want to interpret the Bible, right? But yet God's always given us, and what I love what about Mr. Wesley, and as I shared with you all last week, when it comes to our faith and believing in God and believing the word and believing in heaven, you know, we, we have scripture, we have tradition, we have experience, and we have reason. And we call that Wesley's quadrilateral. And there's truth to that. Scripture, tradition, experience, and reason all builds into our faith and who we believe God really is and God speaking truth in our lives and we read the Bible and it inspires us and encourages us, it convicts us. I, you know, I, I heard this this last week and I never had thought about it, but um, the person was um, referred to like the Bible is almost like a metaphor, it's almost like a biography. I never had thought about that. And the, and the one that immediately when I heard biography and I was kind of putting this perspective of, you know, that the, one of the, I think one of the greatest biographies has written in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years is um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer's book. As a matter of fact, here's a picture of it, and it was written by Eric Metrics, um, Medicus. And, 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 and so Eric um, Bonhoeffer was a, a brilliant scholar. I don't know if you know anything about his work. He, his, his premise of his work was, a, and he talked about cheap grace versus costly grace. I love that. And so when, when you read that book, Bonhoeffer's, um, uh, Eric's book of Bonhoeffer, you know, Bonhoeffer was actually the one who um, uh, got caught up in a conspiracy to kill Hitler. And so um, Hitler found out about it and he says, go get Bonhoeffer. And so it was a tragic, tragic thing because Hitler finally did execute Bonhoeffer. But it was only about two weeks before the end of the war. And it's such a tragedy because Bonhoeffer was brilliant. He was one of the greatest, brilliant theologians of the modern era. And it all goes back to cheap grace or costly grace. And so he had this whole part of his theology and so it was just a powerful, so I read the book. And what's interesting, there's some parts of our autobiographical where he talks about some of his own experiences that, and there's some of his biographical. And so when you look at the, when you look at the Bible, I, I really think that's part of what we are looking at. It's, 
It's how God has continued to speak into people's hearts over these thousands of years, and it's made in the Bible. We considered that canon, which means it's, it's what we truly believe. It, it's the valid word of God that we put together. There's truth in that. I believe in the truth. I believe the Bible is true. And I think that we also have to, and once again, let me close with this little thought today. And um, I think if we're gonna read the Bible, and I think this is really good, I read this this last week, we really have to read the Bible through a filter. Now listen, this is one jumbo filter, isn't it? I mean, this is big coffee, right? But then we also believe in a really big God, and a really big God gave us his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we read the scriptures, I really believe that we really need to read the scriptures through the filter of Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Once again, you go back to the Old Testament, what's very powerful when you have this shift that Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus does, he says, listen, Moses told you this. This is what you have in the Old Testament. Then all of a sudden you have Jesus says, but I tell you this. Moses told you this, but I tell you this. Moses referred to this, but I'm telling you this. And Jesus trumps this. So in the Old Testament, you have the, this, you have the, this way of thinking, the, the law that was given, and then yet Jesus ushers in a whole new way of belief and how salvation comes. So salvation doesn't come through obedience to the law, but salvation comes through the love and grace found in Jesus Christ. Amen on that. There's a shift. So Mo, Jesus says, I, Moses said this, but I tell you this. And where do we see that played out? Once again, it all comes down to loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor yourself. And then Jesus says, I give you a brand new command. The new command is to love just as I have loved you. And he, you know, when I, once again, I refer to this. I love this, and it's a classic piece of scripture. So let's just read the Bible through the lenses of Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus says, and here's a classic example once upon a time, they bring a woman who's caught in adultery. And they bring her to the temple. And there's a big crowd that comes around. And the law said, Moses said, because of her sin, she should be killed, stoned. And then they all bring their stones. And they're going to kill her. And then Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, goes down and then he does something to sand. Then he pops back up. And what's he say? Ye without sin cast the. You all know the story, right? What a great story. And then he bends down, doodles in the ground, one by one, leading with the oldest to the youngest. They drop their stones, kaplunk, 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 kaplunk. And then he turns to the woman and says, well, Who's left to condemn you? Well, no one, Lord. And then Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. What a great story. So Moses says this. And then Jesus says this. Which transforms this into a whole new way of thinking. So when I, I think that what I want to encourage us to think about today and this, this message about maybe you had struggled with doubt, I, I think that once again, I want us to hold to this truth, I think we continue to read the scriptures, the lenses of Jesus, the filter of Jesus, and Jesus is always about love and hope and grace. But we also have to read the scripture that from the standpoint that from the Old Testament, from the very beginning to the very end, 
this really is God's love story for humanity. That really God loves us unconditionally. So you got the creation story at the very beginning and then you got the book of Revelation at the very end and the whole thing is all wrapped up into really the truth that we find and the love of Almighty God for all humanity and it's all bundled up in Jesus. And then through Jesus, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and we find salvation in him. And so when I think about that and reflect upon it, I think the real truth is we once again search our hearts as we read God's holy word, as it speaks truth into our hearts, we have to ask ourselves, am I reading it through the lenses of the way Jesus taught me to love by my thoughts and my words and my deeds and my life? And how does I read the scripture, take it and apply the truth into my heart? and live as a human being the way Jesus really, truly wants me to live. Because I want to be like Jesus. And I take his word, and I want to follow his direction, because I love him. And that is the truth.